Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today. Take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. This is episode 147, and today on Reclaiming the Faith, my wife and I are going to get into Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what was he getting at there? You'll find out today on this episode. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And please be in prayer for me as I am getting pretty close to being done with uh, this book on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. But yeah, be in prayer for me. I'm on chapter 7 right now, 7 of 8 chapters, kind of bringing it home. So please, please pray that what God wants written will be written for the church. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, along with BDK and Kurt and Donald, Dan and Cindy. Y'all can check out what we do on our Omega Frequency Live and Omega Frequency channels there on YouTube and Rumble. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 147. Our passage in verse 12 of chapter 2 starts with a therefore or a so then. And just like we talked about before, uh, a couple times before, we want to look at what that therefore is there for, obviously. So chapter 2, verse 5 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, form, to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now our passage. Therefore, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, so this is definitely a passage I've been looking forward to, not because I understand it fully, but because it's a passage that's full of tension. And I'm one of those weird people that likes those kind of passages. And um, I'm just going to do a little disclaimer up front the Bible does not contradict itself, but there are places where there is tension. 
and there can be tension between two different camps of uh, maybe denominations or beliefs about things. And sometimes, sometimes we need to try to do our best to resolve that tension. But I think it's best for this passage to not try to resolve the tension, um, but to let the tension stay and allow us to wrestle with that tension. And so, and just kind of sit in that tension. I think it's there on purpose for us to, uh, to wrestle with. So um, with that said, let's dig in. Verse 12, so then, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, just as you have always obeyed. Remember, he had just been talking about Jesus obeying, right? Even though he's in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited or used to his own advantage, but uh, he took the form of a bondservant, which by definition, basically, is someone who is seeking to obey their master, right? And he became in the likeness of man, and he humbled himself, coming underneath someone's direction, God the Father, obviously, by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so just one thing right off the bat, uh, again, Paul is showing how Jesus is the ultimate leader because he leads by example. He doesn't call us to do something that he doesn't do first. And uh, another thing that I kind of wanted to hit on is that uh, in some of like the hyper grace movements, obedience is diminished. Obedience to Christ is diminished. Basically, like you've already been saved. Some would even go to a Gnostic point and say, you're already saved whether you understand it or not, whether you know it or not. And so you just need to live in that acceptance. Whether you obey or disobey makes no difference. That kind of stuff is super dangerous, and it's not the gospel that Paul preached. It's not the gospel that Jesus preached yeah. or Peter or James or Jude, any of the John, any of the apostles. That's not what they preached. And um, I want to read for you as we're getting started to kind of show you where Paul is coming from a bit with this obeying, why it's so critical to him. This is one of the main commentaries that I, that I use in my Philippian study. This is a great commentary series. I've got a bunch of commentaries from this series, the New International Commentary of the New Testament. It's Paul's letter to the Philippians and the author is Gordon Fee. One of my uh, seminary professors, when I was taking some classes at Fuller Seminary, uh, he pronounced his name Gordon Fee. And I'm not sure if it's Gordon Fee or Gordon Fee, but Fee is a really popular commentator and it's just a phenomenal commentary. And um, I want to read you a quote from, from Fee uh, about this section, about this verse. It's a pretty short quote. Put it up here on the screen. Fee writes, As his letter to the Romans makes clear, for Paul, faith in Christ is ultimately expressed as obedience to Christ, not in the sense of following the rules, but of, but of coming totally under his lordship of being devoted completely to him. So faith, as Fee is pointing out, Fee is pointing out that Paul points out that faith is not just like a mental assent 
It's not just a, I believe in love, you know, just as like a concept, but it doesn't affect my life. For Paul, faith in Christ means obedience. And this is where he's getting it from. As Paul, as Fee says, it's coming from his letter to the Romans. So let's look at that passage real quick. This is from Romans chapter one. I'm going to read one through six. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, and some would say it's the obedience of faith or the obedience that comes from faith, that flows from faith, the obedience of faith. Faith for Paul is obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's, um, that's a little bit different than we're all often taught about what faith is. You got any thoughts going on right now? No, not right now. Okay. All right. Just like hit me with your leg or something. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. You're We've good. got our dog Amos up here as well as Zeke. We were trying to experiment. So if you see a little white dog jumping up behind our necks and licking us, <laughs> um, that's Amos. Yeah. He's, he's our little puppy. Very, very affectionate. And he likes to walk on the back of cats. He thinks he's <laughs> a cat or something. Yeah. But right now he's being good. He's sleeping. It's very like cute. Zeke. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. So what did the Philippians faithful obedience look like? Paul's saying, just as you've obeyed, not only in my, ab- in my presence, but also in my absence also, what did their faithful obedience look like? Well, I think it looks like what Paul said earlier in the book of Philippians in chapter one, mm-hmm. starting in verse three, it's three through five. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And we went through a bunch of examples of that that you can see uh, in Acts chapter 16 about how uh, Lydia, as soon as she became a believer, she's participating in the gospel. She's bringing Paul and Timothy and Luke and Silas into her house. She's trying to help advance the gospel that way. Roman centurion, uh, as soon as he believes, he's bringing Paul to his house. He's cleaning Paul and Silas's wounds. You know, so he's participating in the gospel. And that's how they, um, that's how the church in Philippi began. But right from the beginning, they're trying to, they're trying to spread the gospel quickly. They're not just being receivers, they're being givers. And I'm not talking about money, you know, I'm talking about their lives. So um, we're going to talk a little bit more again about what it looks like to participate in the gospel as we go through this. Um, But let's keep rolling. So Philippians 2, again, going to verse 12. So then my beloved, 
just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Stephanie, we've been parents for six, six years. Six years. Um, as a parent, do you like that passage? Obeying not just in my presence. Oh, yeah. But also in my absence. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it, as a parent, it feels like I've, I've taught my child well or they have a healthy respect for my authority if they do it not just when I'm there, then also I can turn my back and know, hey, they're still going to be obedient. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Good to see you. Thanks for hanging out. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really showing integrity, right? They're going to be the same person whether we're um, watching them or whether they're not watching them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when we send you know, our kids off to camp or something like that, we're hoping that they're representing the Baker family well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or off to school even. Yeah. yeah. You, you want to know, or you want to feel like, okay, I can, they can, they can be trustworthy in this situation and they're going to represent us in a way that is not going to bring shame on yeah. us. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a passage that came to my mind as I was reading this about not just obeying um, God the Father or our Lord Jesus Christ when, when he's there, but also away. Also has this bond servant idea. Uh, also has this idea of participating in the um, the goals and the purpose of the king. So um, you have something? Mm-hmm. No, okay, okay. Um, so let's check that out. This is Matthew 25. Very famous parable that Jesus tells. Now in, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> At the beginning of this passage, it says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. Um, the it, what's the it? you find the it when you go back to the previous parable, which is the parable of uh, the lamp art. What is it? Goodness gracious. The, the, um, the, the women who had to have their lamps trimmed. Right. And I can't even remember the name of that. I don't know why, but um, yeah, the 10, the 10 virgins. virgins. Yeah, there it is. And it's Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, He's been saying that quite a bit. Um, Jesus started in Matthew chapter 4 talking about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a whole lot about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He tells so many parables in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven. And there's another two, three parables actually in Matthew 25, three parables about the, uh, the kingdom of heaven, what it's like. And so this is this is a, uh, an amazing parable that's very relevant for us as we're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So this is a parable for us about what it should look like for God's kingdom to be being manifested in our lives, participating in his kingdom. No. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> All right, so for it, the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. You can think about Jesus going off on a journey after the cross, right? And the resurrection and ascension, basically. So he's calling his own slaves. This is the same word, the douloi, while Paul would address he and Timothy, himself and Timothy at the beginning of Philippians, they are both bond servants or slaves. He called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions 
to them. Think again about uh, the uh, Great Commission where he says, <laughs> all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He's entrusting to them his authority. All right. So to one of the servants, the master gave five talents. Now, that's not like ability, like playing the piano. That's an incredible sum of money. I think it could be like 18 years wage, something like that. So just mm -hmm. a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, to another, two. And to another, one each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. I want to pause there for just a second. Think about the character of that man, that king that's going off on this journey. Uh, these servants did not earn these things. These are not, um, they didn't do anything to deserve what they're being given. And even the servant that was given one talent, think about giving, being given, entrusted with, 18 years of your wage by someone else. That is just incredible. That's an incredible amount of money and responsibility. And it shows the very generous nature of this master. Let's continue. So immediately, verse 16, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. So he is putting his master's money to work. He's doing stuff with it, trying to expand the kingdom, the realm, the domain of his master. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Also expanding, participating in the domain, the expansion of the domain of the master. Um, but he who received the one talent went away. And he dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. So the master has given him everything he needs to, to uh, be successful, just like the other two servants. They have been given everything they need to be successful, but one does not obey the master. He doesn't do anything with what he's been given. He just holds on to it, right? Just digs it in the ground and saves it, not participating in the kingdom, basically. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master says to him, Well done, good and faithful doulos. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful doulos. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Notice he's saying faithful. Why are they faithful? Because they obeyed. Faith and obedience going hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And the one who had received the one talent came up to him and said, master, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you were a hard man. You are a man who's reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Now, was the master a hard man who reaped where he did not sow and gathered where he did not scatter? No. <laughs> 
he's a he's a very generous master and if they're servants then their job is to do what the master tells them to do and so um he he is empowering them to do that that's different than like i don't know it's different than being um a slave or being forced to He's given you this responsibility. This is not in their normal realm of responsibilities. This is something extra and special that he's invited them into. And, you know, there may be other servants that don't that don't even get that opportunity. But Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like this servant is speaking out of both sides of his mouth because in one sense he's it seems like he's saying like you expected me to like double this and I, I had to like do it all on my own. And then in the very next breath, he's saying, here's what you gave me. Here's your money back. It's kind of weird. But regardless, uh, this servant's view of his master uh, had significant implications on how, on his level of faithfulness, basically, on his level of obedience. He had a very distorted view of the master. Mm-hmm. And that caused him to be stagnant, mm-hmm. basically, and disobedient. Something to keep in mind. Uh, verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy doulos. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did scattered no seed. Oh, you knew that? Well, if that's the case then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. He's saying, basically, if that's the way you really thought of me, then you weren't thinking straight. Therefore, verse 28, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. So throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Let's keep going. Sorry, I'm not going to put that back on the screen. Let's keep <laughs> verse 12 of uh, Philippians 2. Jennifer had a good comment. Oh, I'm sorry. She was just saying it's like, Adam, the woman that you gave me, like he's pushing off the blame. He's not saying you know, that I messed up. I should have done something different, but pushing that off. And I think that's our natural tendency is to, when we feel like we're questioned, to come immediately with, well, let me give you a quick excuse. Mm. Like, it's not my fault. It's someone else's. Yeah, absolutely. So then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now, this work is different from the work you're going to see in verse 13. When it says work out in verse 12, it's based on the root word in Greek, katergatsomai, uh, katergatsomai, and kata, meaning down exactly according to, intensifies into uh, ergosomai, Ergazoma, ergazomai. There it is. Ergazomai. Ergon. Work. Accomplish. Uh, literally to work down to the end point when you combine those two words. Working down to an end point. An end point uh, to a definite conclusion. 
Uh, now, I, I am not a whittler, but I see people on TV who whittle. And my grandfather used to whittle quite a bit. And uh, I, I would see him take a, p- a little piece of wood and like just work at it and work at it and work at it with his knife and turning it into like a real fine point. I'd see him do it with pencils too. He didn't ever, I never saw him use a pencil sharpener. It's my dad on, or my grandfather on my mom's side and uh, her dad. But he would, man, he would whittle on that pencil and create this really fine point. And that's uh, maybe an analogy that you could latch on to, like taking a two by four, a long two by four, two, two by four and carving it into a spear or something like that. Uh, I saw a guy on YouTube take a, uh, a I believe it was a birch, uh, shelf and turn it into a semi hollow body guitar. Like took a, a, a nice thick shelf and he just worked on that shelf. He had the picture in mind of what he wanted it to look like in the end. He took a shelf and turned it into a guitar and not like a cheap guitar, an incredible guitar. And that's kind of what you could think about um, when you're thinking about this word, katergatsomai, uh, to work out, you're actually doing something. I want to show you the first time this word, the law of first mentions, as we've talked about before, the first time this word is used by Paul. Uh, it's in Romans chapter one. Hey, Froggy. Uh, Glad you could make it. Hey, Froggy. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're looking at Philippians chapter two. We're uh, in verse 12 right now, and we're looking at this idea of working out your salvation. Uh, and we talked about how that word work out is like to um, bring to a, a, a very specific endpoint, and um, like whittling a piece of wood into something sharp. Here's the first time that word work out uh, is used. Uh, the katergatsomai, gatsomai, in Paul, and it's not. It doesn't say work out. It's it's translated into a different word. So, anyways, here's here's Romans one, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, because of this idolatry of instead of worshiping the Creator, they're worshiping created things. God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function of that for which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of that error. All right. And so it's showing in verse 27 how the desire led to action, the actual things that are being done. So it's not just this desire. It's not just this thing that's put inside you that you just feel. That's not working out. That's not the work. It's an actual action. Actions have to take place. So just keep that in mind as we continue. This is stuff that we have to do. There's action involved. Continuing, verse 12. So work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right? Your salvation. So um, in, in the scriptures, it basically shows three aspects to our salvation. 
it, it, in, in one sense. It's saying that we were saved. It'll say that we are being saved. And it'll say that we will be saved. So past, present, and future regarding our salvation. I want to show you three passages that, that bear this out. Yeah, still in the works. That's right. All right. So here's a passage from 2 Timothy, starting uh, in chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, I think it's actually chapter 1, verse 8. I don't know why I had chapter 2. I believe it's chapter 1, verse 8. Um, so let me put this up here on the screen. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So what got us into this relationship? Was it anything that we had done? Not at all. And Paul's going to hit on that so hard when we get into chapter three. Works don't save us. Works don't get us into this relationship with God uh, being our father and us being adopted uh, children of his. No. Not at all. Um, we are saved by his grace, right? By grace through faith. So we were saved, right? We were brought into a relationship with him. Now, that's the past. Here's the present. But we are being saved. We were saved, but we are being saved. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And we're actually going to come back to this passage in a little bit. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. And again, we're going to get into that verse a little bit more um, and a little bit, but uh, I just want to show you the concept. Yes, these are people who were saved, but are also being saved. All right. Jennifer says, Amen. Works will come naturally from dying to old self and being born again in Christ Jesus. That's great. She also yeah. said, thank you for addressing that we are being saved. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get into more of what I think, uh, part, part at least, part of what I think Paul is getting at um, from a Philippians, a Philippi kind of point of view, a Roman point of view because he's speaking to a, a church that is in one of the most patriotic cities in the Roman Empire. And if you want to go back to um, episode one and two of this whole Philippian series, you're going to see a whole lot of that, um, why that context is so important. But we're going to hit on it again tonight, uh, just a little bit more brevity. So we saw how we were saved. We saw how we are being saved. And here's a passage that shows that we will be saved. We're saved, being saved, will be saved. 
This is in Matthew chapter 10. Give a little context for Matthew chapter 10. Jesus has just called his disciples to be apostles, some of his disciples to be apostles. And he's sending them out now in pairs to uh, preach the kingdom of God, to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And he's saying like, hey, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. It's don't take money with you. I mean, he's, yeah. He's giving them real talk, as some would say. Uh, he's not sugarcoating this at all. This is going to be a really um, stretching mission that's going to require a lot of faith. And so just want to pick this up in verse 21. Jesus says, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. Excuse me. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Just keep that in mind. That kind of theme is repeated uh, in different parts of the Bible, not just in like Matthew 24. Yeah, go ahead. This doesn't sound anything like what I learned in vacation Bible school. I just have to throw that out there. <laughs> you know, the ABC of the, the ABCs of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was, uh, when I was um, in high school and I really committed my life to Jesus, I was encouraged to write the date down in my Bible as something to look back at. And I think that that that's important, but that doesn't begin to hit on this, that enduring to the end. And um, it's a really disheartening verse, but at the same time, it's also very hopeful. Mm. Like it's, it's disheartening in the sense that like, that's not what's generally taught in churches, at least not in America. I'm sure in places where, um, you know, there, where there's persecution abundant, then that's what they're taught. But here where things are generally pretty comfortable, it's not the case most of the time. Yeah, I, I view Matthew 10 as just as important for a Christian's walk as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I view Matthew 10 as just as important as uh, Jesus' super, like second longest sermon, basically, <laughs> in a sense, which is like Matthew... Uh, 24 and 25, because those two chapters are actually just one sermon. Matthew 10 is so jam-packed, full of real talk, straight talk from Jesus about what it's going to mean to actually follow him, what it looks like, and the challenges that you're going to face. And um, yeah, just it, it should be something that people should read as new Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh Jesus talks a lot in Matthew, or sorry, in Luke chapter 14 about counting the cost before you decide to follow him. He's not caring about numbers in the sense that most of us would for a church gathering. We want to see a lot of numbers. He's looking at the depth of each person, and he's also, um, he's, he's so honest and so caring that he's like, I'm not going to put you on this road that's going to be hard unless you're, you know, you, you really understand what you're getting into. I'm not going to lie to you and say it's going to be easy every step of the way, but, you know, he's he's there with us. Yeah, and he's not looking for scholars. He's looking for people that will be loyal. 
He doesn't care how much education we have. He cares about our faithfulness to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. DRC's comment. Oh, let me put it up there. Revelation quite often talks about enduring or persevering to the end to be saved. Yeah, 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 yeah. You definitely have that theme running running through that book for sure. I want to think a little bit about this idea of being saved from a Roman point of view. We're going to come back to some of the stuff we talked about in the first couple episodes. All right. The gospel of Caesar is something that would be heavy on the minds of people in Philippi. All right. After his victory in Gaul, Julius Caesar came into Rome declaring himself to be emperor around 46 BC. Rome was a republic, and this greatly angered the Senate. A few years later, they decided to murder him on March 15th. Brutus and Cassius, Brutus being, um, you know, one of Caesar's friends, they, they murdered him, and they fled and raised a great army. Caesar's adopted son, Octavian, someone that we know as Caesar Augustus, the Caesar that was uh, around at Jesus' birth, basically. And Mark Antony also raised an army, and those two sides met at Philippi. It's called Philippi because it's basically a city named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon, which is in Macedonia, Philippi, and, you know, Philip of Macedon, all that, all right? So they meet at Philippi, uh, Brutus and Cassius versus... Uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony. And so is this, is, is Rome going to be a republic or an empire? There are two battles, and on the second one, Octavian and Mark Antony win. Now, several years later, Octavian and Antony battle for who's going to be in charge, and Octavian, Caesar Augustus's adopted son, wins. And he's crowned Caesar Augustus after that. And he's crowned both Lord and God. Coins around that time call him the savior of the world. He helped bring in the Pax Romana, the great peace of Rome. His gospel said peace and security had come to Rome now. And the empire cult begins to take off then. The gospel as comes through the dominator Caesar. Now this word gospel Though you can see it, good news, you can see it in the Old Testament. The Greek flavor of it had nothing to do with the Jewish um, flavor from the, like the book of Isaiah, God bringing good news, the gospel to the poor, that kind of stuff like you'll see in uh, chapter 61 or earlier, I think it's like uh, 52 or something about the feet of those who bring good news. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. For a Rome, in a Roman perspective, gospels, good news, would be announcements concerning the empire, the birth of an imperial heir, a victory over Rome's enemies, the coronation of a new emperor, in some cases, simply an imperial announcement. These are good news or gospel, all right? And in Philippi, the gospel was brought to Philippi um, that Caesar had won, and he was going to make them a colony of Rome. And this is just incredible. Caesar has beaten Octavian, and now Philippi, since it had a lot of um, soldiers there who fought in the early war, they're going to be uh, given the opportunity to be a colony. 
and a colony would be a reflection of Rome. So they would be given these things called Roman benefactions, benefactions, which are good works. So some of these good works that would be given to uh, Philippi or any colony of Rome would be like aqueducts. They get paved streets, temples, theaters, imperial games. They're given by Rome to represent Rome. So think about it. Uh, These countries did not do anything to earn these good works. They're not being saved because they already had good works. They're saved by submitting, basically, to Caesar, putting their faith and their trust and their allegiance in Caesar. And because of that, Caesar gives them good works. He he creates good works for them to, to do, basically. He's going to give them the money, the manpower, all that stuff, everything they need to be a reflection of Rome. So if you want to know what a colony of Rome looked like, all you had to do would go to be to go to Philippi. It's almost like you're in there itself, kind of like we're citizens of heaven. Uh, we're ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of heaven, basically. If you want to know what Jesus is like, you should be able to look at Christians. If you know, want to know what heaven's like, in, in many regards, in terms of the characteristic, the character of, of the king, you should be able to go to like Christian gatherings and get a, a sense of that uh, in our gatherings. And so Paul hits on this, I think, pretty well in Philippians chapter 1. And we covered this before, but I want to put it up on the screen again. Think about the whole benefactions deal. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm very confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Think about that from a Roman point of view. So you have Caesar beginning these good works in Philippi to bring it to completion or maturity, to actually start from this very meager, um, patriotic, small kind of city-ish thing to being this grand reflection of Rome. And Paul's saying just uh, even more so than what began in Rome You, church in Philippi, you may have started very small, but you're going to be a reflection of the kingdom of heaven. The good work that God began in you, he's going to bring to completion. The gospel, you are being saved in a sense. Philippi was being saved by Rome to be a reflection of Rome. And check out this verse again. We talked about earlier, coming back to it now, 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And he's going to describe some of what a triumph, what would happen here, who manifests through us the sweet aroma of him in every place. This word triumph is a Roman word, very much so a Roman word. When people saw this, when Paul's audience saw triumph, they would immediately have a picture of a triumph, a Roman triumph in their minds. And this is what a Roman triumph is. A Roman triumph was a spectacular victory celebration or parade held in the city of Rome 
for a military commander who had won an important victory on the battlefield. You could kind of think about this incredible parade. You know, Caesar beats the Gauls, right? Up near France, and he's coming back down and just massive parade celebration happens. There are certain things, though, that happen in that triumph that Mark um, relates to uh, what happened to Jesus in uh, his crucifixion. Anyway, uh, and, and I would encourage you, I'm going to put this up on the screen just for you to check out in your free time. Do a search for T.E. Schmidt. And this is the title of the article, Mark 15, 16 through 32, the crucifixion narrative in the Roman triumphal procession. Here's some stuff from that article. There's some evidence that first century triumphs included the distribution of an aromatic of aromatic substances along with the route of the procession. Like incense? Yeah. So like as the Caesar is being led and proclaimed as, or uh, the Roman commander, whatever, is being heralded and... Uh, and proclaimed as this great triumphing leader, mm -hmm. you have this aroma that's coming with him. Now, what's also coming with this military commander, right? If he just beat the Gauls, well, he's got some prisoners also. A very common aspect of these, of these triumphs is that the leader would have with him criminals to be executed. And so, as this... Caesar is being led down the street and everyone's cheering. Uh, with him, you have these criminals that are going to be put to death. And this smell is a smell of life for those who are on the winning side, right? That the Caesar has triumphed, the general has triumphed. But that smell for those who are being led behind him, who are captives, is actually a smell of death. They know their execution awaits. Mm. Paul is taking that and like turning it on its head in a sense. Jesus is the one who's triumphed and we're called to be that aroma as we are a reflection of him. Our king is the triumphing king. And if you're with him, that smell, that aroma that we live out is a, is a reminder to those who have given their allegiance to him that we win because he won. We win not because we did anything, but because he did. Right. But to those who are rejecting him, us living, showing his life through ourselves is actually like an aroma of death to them. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Kind of an interesting little metaphor. Explains why persecution. You know, there's so much persecution because it's, if what, the Christians are saying is right, then that is a huge thing that um, folks who are in opposition are going to have to deal with. And a lot of times it's easier just to shut people down than it is to grapple with. Like if they're right, then what does that mean for me? Mm -hmm. so, yep, you know. absolutely. All right, let's get into this fear and trembling thing just a little bit. I always picture like... Exactly. And I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. Okay. So my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Now you're right. I mean, when, when, when I first read this stuff, I was like, you know, first time reading through Philippians, I'm like, Ooh, that's scary. Cause God is going to 
crack you over your head. Mm. And I think there does need to be that like healthy awe. I mean, we read that Matthew 25 passage about the servant who's disobeying his master, wicked, lazy servant gets cast out in the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And maybe that's what Paul is talking about, but I don't, personally, I don't think that's really the heart of what he's saying. Uh, look at, we'll, we'll do this. Um, I think this is the law of first mentions thing again, but it's second uh, Corinthians two again. Uh, and it's in verse three, but we'll give it a little bit of context. Okay. So when I came to you, brethren, talking about Paul coming to the people in Corinth, you can read about that uh, in Acts chapter uh, 18. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. But I determined not to know anything among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. All right. Came with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's the same verbiage uh, that he's using in Philippians chapter two and verse 12. And I think what you get from that second Corinthians passage, chapter two, is that Paul is emptying himself. Sounds like humility. Like, yep. my message and my preaching, where he's basically saying, like, it wasn't that I said something so great, but, you know, I was humble and God worked. Yeah. I'm going to empty myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go on and on and on and on. Paul is an incredible orator. Yeah. You know. Poor in spirit. But he's just like, I'm going to let God do. I'm going to... I'm going to try to be like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And think about what Jesus said in Philippians 2.5, or how Paul describes Jesus, rather, in Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He emptied himself, took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, like Stephanie was saying. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we talked about how Jesus modeled that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of God. I think that that idea of being poor in spirit is uh, very much what Paul is going at with the um, fear and trembling. We're, we are nothing compared to him. We have nothing apart from him. We are nothing apart from him. Um, so... Let's keep going. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now verse 13. Hallelujah. For it is God who is at at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. It's God who's at work in you. This is a different word for work than the earlier word for work. Uh, This is not the one like like the um, whittling down to a very dis- determined endpoint. That's not what this is. This is different. This is energeo, all right? 
and put that up. Energeo means to energize. Working in a situation which brings it from one stage to the next, like an electrical current energizing a wire, bringing it to a shining light bulb. So the light bulb is being energized by this current of electricity running down the wire. So God is bringing power to us, kind of like in, do you have something? Mm-mm. Kind of like in the Great Commission where Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go. He's empowering them. He's commissioning them. He's giving the authority. He's giving them the power also, just like he did in Matthew 10. He's given the authority to go preach the kingdom of God. He's given them the power to, to cast out demons. He's given them the power to heal the sick. They can't cast out demons by themselves. You see what happens to them when they try to cast out demons by themselves. And I believe it's like Mark 9. And they can't because they're not praying. You know, prayer is that letting God's power, you know, flow through us in one sense to cast out a demon. Why couldn't we cast it out? The disciples said. And Jesus said, this kind can only come out through prayer or fasting. You know, it's, it's just amazing. How do you cast out a demon without praying? Well, I think they're confusing this energeo thing, right? Like God is the one working through us. We need to depend on him, like fear and trembling thing, rather than trying to do this on our own. It's just amazing to me. But I, I make way more foolish mistakes than they do. But God is the one energizing. Check out this, this quote from Fee also, if you're new. Uh, Again, this is a great commentary to check out uh, from Gordon Fee. Gordon Fee. (laughs) Got these chubby fingers to get in the way. All right. Um, It's great. I'm going to give you another quote. So he's talking about energeo here. And he says, this verb, as elsewhere, does not so much mean that God is doing it for them, but that God supplies the necessary empowering. God's not going to do it for you, but God gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Like 2 Peter 1 says, and I would encourage you, okay? And I've said this before, but I really want you to to read 2 Peter chapter 1. If you want to know, like basically, I could have just used 2 Peter chapter 1 to describe these two verses from Philippians 2. I'm not going to do it. I want you to do your homework, your own study, and look at uh, obeying God uh, by working out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is working in you to will and work for his good pleasure. There are so many correlations between Philippians 2, 12 through 13 and 2 Peter chapter 1. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. What I want to do now is bring this home. Um, I want to show you what I think is another example. It's not as long. It's a shorter example of working out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is energizing you to do this. He's not doing the work for you, but he's given you everything you need to live for his good purpose, to be that reflection of the kingdom of heaven. And this passage is found in Romans chapter 8. Love Romans 8 for a lot of reasons. And there's way more in Romans 8 that should encourage you than what starts in like verse 39 
all right, about like nothing can separate us. If that's your picture of Romans 8, you've missed the main, the main meat of Romans 8 is not found beginning in verse 39. It's found before verse 39, the meat of Romans 8. And uh, I just want to read uh, three verses for us. It's going to be Romans 8, verse 11 through 13. Think about these verses in uh, correlation to Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Here we go. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me pause there for a second. Though yes, in one sense, he is talking about the resurrection. In one sense, he's going to raise you up and you're going to be conformed to the image of his son, like Paul talks about later in Romans 8. But there's way more. So he's giving this life, this empowerment to do something. All right. So then, brethren, because uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is giving life to us, we are, verse 12, under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that right there is why Paul is not particularly talking about the resurrection when he says the Spirit of, of him who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your body. The life is this new ability to put to death the deeds of the body. And I want you to think about the difference between Caesar Augustus and King Jesus, between King Caesar and King Jesus. The difference of the way they live is the difference between the flesh and the spirit. Caesar is all about him, 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 him. Exaltation of him. People bowing down to him, forcing them to, and if they don't, off with their head. Jesus comes as the servant to all, dying for his enemies serving us, becoming bond servants for us, basically, so that we can share in his reward. We're called to become more and more like, like Jesus. And God has given us an incredible power to, to put to death these deeds of the body. I was just thinking about how, um, you know, Caesar was projecting this image of immortality. And obviously there was never an immortal Caesar. Um, you know, Jesus you know, claimed that he was going to rebuild this temple, you know, three days later and he was, they tried to take him down for that. And, but it was true. So like, but all the things that the earthly Caesar, you know, King Caesar promised they may partially come true, but they're not, they're not lasting where the things from Jesus are eternal. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's hard to trust Jesus sometimes because we don't have those, 
physical things all the time to look back at, like you do with the Caesar, like, oh, you gave us these aqueducts, you gave us these gladiator games or whatever. You gave us all of these great things for our city that we can look at and know that you are taking care of us. Um, I think that sometimes people go through their lives and think that they don't, they don't have that. I mean, they don't, they're not at least aware of it, but I think we have to be um, looking at it with the right kind of eyes. Like we have to ask Jesus to help us to be more aware of um, all the blessings that he's given us. And then, you know, sometimes it's a good practice just to like go through the day thinking of as many things as you can to be thankful for. And all of those things are reminders that that God is faithful, that God is taking care of us. And um, yeah, there are things that we have hope that is eternal and not this, just in this temporal world. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, I just want to end this by uh, reading to you an excerpt from an ancient Christian document. So you had a guy named Polycarp who is the Bishop of Smyrna starting most likely at the very end of the first century and going until the mid second century. This guy was personally discipled by the apostle John. And he is most likely the Bishop who was leading the church at Smyrna when the letters, when the letter of revelation was sent around to those churches in Asia Minor. And if you notice, Smyrna does not have any rebuke toward it. This is a very, very healthy church, the church at Smyrna, in a very dangerous place to be a Christian. Its leadership, I mean, you can imagine, this guy's a personal disciple of John. He's got a great relationship with him, and he is very well respected in the early church. In fact, like you see this interaction between Polycarp and this bishop of Rome, Anicetus, uh, also in the mid-2nd century where the bishop of, of Rome, who's not the pope, but he's got a lot of power, he defers to Polycarp on some things. It's pretty neat stuff. So anyway, Polycarp, we only have one of his letters. There's only one. He probably wrote a whole lot, but we only have a copy of one. And it is his letter to the Philippians. And one of the things you see in that, there's a lot of Paul in Polycarp's letter. There's some John in Polycarp's letter also to the Philippians, but he's basically reminding them of different things that Paul had said. Now, he may be quoting Paul straight up, or he may be alluding to different things that Paul has said, but there's a whole lot of it in there. If you've never read Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, you can find it really easily online. Go check it out, read it for yourself. But I want to show you a few um, excerpts from that letter where you can basically see Polycarp explaining the tension in working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you to will and work for his good pleasure. There's tension there and it's okay. So think about those verses, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. As I read you this document that's almost 2,000 years old, Polycarp says, It does my heart good to see how the solid roots of your faith, which have had such a reputation ever since early times, are still flourishing and bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. 
In him, endurance went so far as to face even death for our sins. But God overruled the pangs of the grave and raised him up to life again. Though you never saw him yourselves, yet you believe in him in a glory of joy beyond all words, which not a few others would be glad to share, well knowing that it is by his grace that you are saved, not of your own doing, but by the will of God through Christ Jesus. That's one side of the coin. So gird up your loins now and serve God in fear and sincerity. No more of the vapid discourses and sophistries of the vulgar. Put your trust in him who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and gave him glory and a seat at his own right hand. All things in heaven and earth have been made subject to him. Everything that breathes pays him homage. He comes to judge the living and the dead. And God will require his blood at the hands of any who refuse him allegiance. And he that raised him from the dead will raise us also if we do his will and live by his commands and cherish the things he cherished. We know that God is not mocked and therefore we owe it to ourselves to behave in a manner worthy of his precepts and glory. To please him in this present world is to earn the world to come. For we have his promise that he will raise us from the grave. And if we prove ourselves good citizens of his here, we shall reign with him hereafter if we have faith. The happy man is he who keeps this in mind. And I am sure that it is true of you. So may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, help you grow in faith and truth, in unfailing gentleness and the avoidance of all anger, in patience and forbearance and in calmness and purity to you and to ourselves as well, and to all those under heaven who shall one day come to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his Father who raised him from the dead, may he grant part and portion among the saints. my breath a fire starts afresh soon as I lay my head the sun comes up again but in the valley of the shadow you Faith, in faith I'll take your hand 
got no more to give But oh my Lord, it's like I've got no more to give You are a shield all around You answer when I cry aloud I won't dwell in dread For you lift my head Let mercy abound My own flesh and blood A covenant betrayed How long must my heart What's permanent remains My God makes me whole And you my future safe So use me, Lord, until I've got no more Inheritance in you is 